Um, welcome. Uh, for those of you that weren't able to be with us last week, and you're here this week, uh, we're jumping in. We're in uh, part two of three of a sermon series on uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Pastor Steve last week kicked it off and introduced us to the blessings and woes. This is going to help. And uh, this week I'm going to carry it on uh, with another portion. Um, and we'll have some theatrics up here as well to help hopefully help things make a little bit of sense to you. Um, so our sermon series is titled Plain and Simple. For one, because Jesus preached his message on a plain, a level place. Uh, and also I think... Um, Jesus said things very simply. He wasn't a guy to beat around the bush or to kind of be elusive. I feel like on the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says things very plain and very simple. Sorry, I keep pulling things out of my pockets. I know that must be distracting for all of you. <clears throat> so, if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to check it out because it was a phenomenal message. I caught it via our pad podcast off of our website. If you visit uh, hillcrestmj.com, go to the resources tab, click on podcast. You'll be able to find it there and be blessed at what you find there, okay? Um, there are many great speeches that have changed history. Everyone loves a good speech. You know, those speeches that engage the crowd, clarify the problem, and then motivate people towards action. You know, and they're not just, not just um, political, though there are many great political speeches, but they, they resonate, with, uh, resonate with us on a personal uh, level. For instance, think of um, Winston Churchill, who was an amazing, amazing speech giver. And uh, in June 4th, 1940, he gives that line that we shall fight them on the beaches. Uh, in, in relation to Britain's stand against Nazis. John F. Kennedy, another one, 1961, that idea that ask not what your country can do for you, but what... Yeah, you guys know that speech, yeah, right on. Um, another one, uh, Martin Luther King's, that famous line that starts out with, I have a dream, another amazing speech. Mother Teresa, receiving a Nobel Prize, gives... The line that says, love begins at home. And in 1994, who could forget Nelson Mandela being free from prison and saying, free at last. You know, there are other, there are other speeches too that are, that are memorable, but, but, but they're not really, they're more fix, fictitious, right? They're, they're something that the movies have created. My mind jumps instantly to probably the best speech of all time, which is William Wallace in Braveheart. Right? When he's rallying the Scotsmen to rise against the English. You know, you can hear him shouting with his painted face and saying, you know, would you be willing to trade all the days from that day to this just for one chance, one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that I, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our... Yes, you've seen it. They move us, don't they? There's something about speeches that even though they can be political in nature, they grab us personally and move us. Another one, maybe a little less known by some of the older generation, but Emmett's speech to the master builders in the Lego movie. Got me. Really got me. I won't, I won't quote it for you. 
There's other inspirational uh, speeches that we've all heard. You know, you think of, um, well, you think of uh, movies again and the romance that ensues. You know, the, the classic, um, you, you had me at hello and you complete me. Same movie. I try to keep my diet of those movies down to, <laughs> down to a small, as my wife can attest, like, I can't even watch Heartland without my eyes leaking. It's horrible. It's horrible. They just, they get me. I remember, you know, or whether it's our coaches, you know, many of you probably played sports or play sports and those rallying speeches that your coaches gave you in the locker room at halftime when you're down that inspire you and grip you and get you invested as a team so that you can go forward with a common action. Probably one of the, well, this is the wrong time to get choked up. Probably one of the best speeches I ever heard um, came from my brother. And uh, I mean, he was 18 months older than me. He's much wiser. And so as I was like leaving home, um, coming to him for some advice and going, I'm not sure what I should do. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to, you know, where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do with my life. And his, his speech to me was simply, Chris, just be yourself. Be yourself. And if nobody else laughs at your jokes, dad and I will. Okay. (laughs) It moved me. It motivates me. I remember it. It was a great speech. Well, in the series that we're in, I would suggest to you that all those political speeches had their day, had their time in the limelight, and achieved what they were intended to do. But the speech we're looking at in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, is a speech that is still going on and is still relevant to us today. It's intended to engage us. It's intended to clarify things for us, and it's intended to motivate us. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. Again, as uh, Pastor Steve did an amazing job last week uh, on his sermon message, um, I'm not going to re-preach it. I'm going to try not to re-preach it. But it is foundational. Understanding the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain is foundational for understanding the rest of it. And uh, the best way I can kind of explain the first first part uh, is with, with some Fruit Loops, okay? So if you want to turn with your Bibles with me, we'll, uh, we'll get going here. But first, I'm just going to say a word of prayer. Lord, you are amazing. I thank you for your spirit that is here, that you are alive and well, and that you choose to dwell amongst your people. I thank you that you are never far off, that your word is always close to at hand. God, I ask that you'd be present in this moment with us. Lord, would you teach? Would you stir our hearts? Would you engage us? Would you clarify? Would you motivate? We look to you for direction, and we trust you for everything, Lord. Amen. So here we go. We're kicking it off in Luke uh, chapter 6, and Steve was speaking from verses 17 all the way down to 26. And it's talking about blessings and woes. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but really, if I'm going through the process of engage, clarify, and motivate, I really feel like like Steve got the best chunk of it in terms of engagement, right? There it is. Jesus is on a hillside, and he's surrounded by tons of people, a multitude of people. He'd just chosen all of his disciples and he sits down, and he sits down to teach them. And he looks at his disciples, but there's, there's a sense that there's a lot of people gathered around him. 
And he pitches this picture that says, blessed are people that have very little. Whoops, Doug is going to be upset with me for spilling Fruit Loops everywhere. And he goes on to say, if you have very little, you're blessed. You know, rejoice if you're persecuted for the name of Christ or for the Son of Man. And then he goes on and he speaks woes. Now these woes are missing from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Because, I mean, nobody likes woes. But he challenges that those, those who have a lot, he speaks woe to you. Woe when you're well fed now, when you have a lot, when people speak well of you. Woe. Be warned. Now, now the foundation for the, for the message here, I think, is this idea that where our world chases after Fruit Loops, right? We want to fill our lives with, with stuff that we can have, things that would bring our, us comfort, things that would make life easy. We value those things. And we tend to treat people different that have those things. And yet Christ, with his introduction here, spins it and says, but the blessing the perspective from heaven actually resides with those who don't have anything or have very, very little. Because where the world sees much and sees little, God sees lots of opportunity and much distraction. I can't help but think of Jesus' speech as being extremely political, right? That, the, that the, this idea of blessing raises up those who are lowly and this idea of woes kind of brings people down um, who might be way up here. It's kind of a leveling speech. And I feel like, um, you know, in Jesus' day and age when he was giving this message, the Jewish, the Jewish religion or the Jews, they were familiar with revolt, right? Keep in mind that they're under Rome's rulership. And there's a sense across the country that there's this Pax Romana, which is, which is like a, a Roman peace. And that by military might, they have been able to introduce peace. But it's not a peace without tensions, without anxieties. And history is filled of, of, of even Jewish leaders that would lead up the Maccabeans, that would lead up people to come and revolt against Rome and try and overthrow the powers that are, that are dominating over them. And so you can almost imagine that as people are gathered around Jesus and he gives this speech, that after he talks about blessings and woes and about keeping your mind fixed on what heaven's perspective is, he could have gone almost anywhere with those people. I can almost imagine that they were all on the, on the edge of their little chunk of turf waiting for what is he going to say next. And I believe if he'd have wanted to, he could have led them into Jerusalem and had a massive revolt and overthrew Rome without any problem. And yet, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what he taught. Which brings us to our chunk of scripture today. If you'll look, take a look with me in uh, Luke 6, verse 27. Here it is. This is what Jesus says. These are the next words out of his mouth. He says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What? Jesus comes out 
opportunity to lead a revolution and he comes out with love your enemies, that's going to need some clarifying. Christ's words are meant to bring us some level of cognitive dissonance where we're, where we're confused or we're challenged by the words that he says. They even seem scandalous. What do you mean love our enemies? You know, Jews would see Rome as their enemy, wanting to inflict their rule and their gods on the Jewish heritage. The last thing they wanted to do was see Rome succeed, and yet these are Christ's word. And yet, a note of clarification, the beginning of that verse starts with, those who are listening. Remember, Jesus started this speech looking at his disciples, and now he says, for those who are listening. This message isn't for everyone. Not everybody has the stomach for this message, but this is for the disciples that are listening. Maybe some couldn't make it past the woes of the previous passage. They were insulted that their possessions or comfort or reputation was in jeopardy. And so they did more murmuring than listening at this point. Maybe they were distracting others about all the things that Jesus isn't considering. But Jesus has a word for those who are tracking with him. These words are for his disciples. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, I, I believe I'm, I'm working towards, I want to be a disciple of Christ. And maybe you're here today and you're just saying, mm, I just kind of want to check. I want some more information. I'm not too sure about this Jesus character. Well, in both cases, I believe that God has a word for you and I challenge you to listen to what it is Christ is saying. Maybe if you're like me, this idea of loving my enemies would be best if I avoided them, right? Because I tend to be fairly hot-tempered. And so if I get into the same room with somebody that has done me wrong or there's some bad history there, it's usually pretty tense. There's usually some conflict or some awkwardness, some clashing or some fighting. And so for me, I say, you know what? Distance is best. I would say, you know what? Somebody who wrongs me, or I feel done wrong by, I'll typically tend to avoid them. Anybody else in the room interact with life that way? And yet, get what Jesus says. Look at this. He says, do good to those that hate you. Bless them when they curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I don't know about you, but if I'm hated, I just tend to avoid that person. Or how about when we're... Um, Blessing when we're cursed. I, I wouldn't even know how to process this. Here's, here's the best story I could come up with. Uh, it, involves a, it involves a police officer. Uh, I'm in Calgary. My cousin's driving. We're driving way too fast down Deerfoot. Like way too fast. And there ends up being um, a radar. And the radar, like the guy pulls us over. But we're going so fast that this, this, this police officer actually wanders out into the, onto the highway to direct us over. And you can tell that he's visibly upset. My cousin jams on the brakes. We pull over. His side window comes down and the police officer approaches. And this cop is rightfully upset. We were going way, way too fast. And he begins to rattle off all the stats on how many accidents and deaths are, are caused as a result of speeding. And he goes on and goes, and rightly so, we deserve the lecture. And yet, my cousin, and, and I, I would share this emotion, you just, you know how it is, you just have a hard time speaking well. Even though he's in the right, you have a hard time just being okay 
with the lecture that you're getting, right? It's hard to bless, even when they're, even when they're in the right. And yet also, what about if you've been mistreated and abused? Think about the Jewish people who are being oppressed. And yet Jesus' words are, love your enemy and pray for those, pray for those who mistreat you. And this isn't a prayer that's like, I pray that they would experience God's wrath. Rather, this is a prayer that says, I pray that they would experience God's blessing. Who wants to pray like that? I know I definitely struggle. Jesus goes on to clarify. Verses 29 to 31. He says, this is what it should look like in your everyday life. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have done to you. Take note that these verses seem to be applied in terms of from the perspective of the victim. They've been slapped, taken from, asked of, and essentially just robbed. Here's, what ha- here's what's happening. It's as if the strong are exploiting the weak. That they look and they see something that they can take and they want more. So they simply take what others don't have or what others have very little to give just to fill their lives up. Talk about injustice. This is wholesale injustice that's happening. And yet, it gets really interesting. The last part of this verse is the golden rule that simply says, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Which seems kind of misplaced to me or insulting. It's kind of like after hearing your friend out after a long coffee and they've just poured out their heart about how they've been mistreated at, mistreated at work and their boss has taken advantage of their kind heart and having unrealistic expectations and this person feels like they're just giving and giving and giving and yet you say to them, well, just do unto others as you would have done unto you. Right? They look at you and they say, well, tell that to my boss. Right? Don't tell me that. I'm the, one, I'm the victim here. I'm the one who's being wronged. Why isn't my boss listening to that? The golden rule. You know, they should be treating us well. If they're not following the rules, why should I? Right? It's almost like that's where that, that, that turn takes, where all of a sudden, the victim gets kind of self-righteous. We get judgmental, and we're like, you know what, they're just that way. That's just who they are. They treat everybody that way. And we condemn them. You know what, they'll never change. There's no hope for them. I just need to avoid them or get out of this situation. And guys, at that point, it becomes incredibly, almost impossible to try and love our enemies. And while I'd suggest to you that this might be the golden rule, it's only the second greatest commandment. I'll leave that with you for a second. Even though it's the golden rule, it's only the second greatest commandment. And I think Jesus knew that. 
And I think he's highlighting something to us in this passage along that. Our next passage of scripture is from 32 on. Read with me if you, if you will, 32 to 34. Here it is what Jesus says. He says, if you love those who love you, which is the golden rule, what credit is that to you? Where is he going with this? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are doing good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Some of you are thinking 4 or 5%. Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. It's like Jesus is presenting the golden rule in a limiting light. Do unto others as you would have done unto you is a general rule that works without consideration of heaven, without any need from God. Because it's simply a wisdom that even makes sense to sinners. Of course I'm going to love those who love me back. You know, kind of this idea that if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And this way, we both end up getting what we want. It's a logic and a philosophy that is founded on human wisdom in a lot of ways. It's plain and simple. But it's easier said than done. It's all about horizontal relationships. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, if you have something to offer me without regard for the heavenly relationship. And yet Jesus, right at the very beginning, in speaking blessings and woes, is saying, this earthly perspective that says, you have a lot and you have nothing, is not at all how heaven works. It's not how God's kingdom functions. Christ would see this as a potential tragedy, that though you have much, you have no room for God. And he would see this as such an opportunity that though you feel like you have nothing, you have nothing to trust in, nothing to put your hope in, yet God is readily available to you and there is nothing but opportunity here. Yet Christ challenges us that living this way to love those who love us back and do good to those who treat us well in return, and to lend to those who can be trusted to repay is of no credit to us. The world loves this way, but this is not how God's kingdom works. Now here comes the motivation, aren't you glad? Here comes the motivation. The next verses, verses 35, 35 to 36. Jesus restates it. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. The promise here is that our reward will be great if we love our enemies. If you look back, just flip your page over, I wanted to draw attention to verse 23 in the sermon that Steve had preached, that Jesus had preached first, and then Steve preached it. Verse 23, 
Let's look at this. It says, after the blessings, it says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. And the whole reason behind that is if you are rejected because of the Son of Man, if you are rejected for Christ's sake, your reward is great in heaven. Interesting. Rewards in heaven. There and now again in loving our enemies. That our reward will be great. Again, loving our enemies reveals our true identity. He's not saying that if you love your enemies, then you will be sons of God in terms of you need to prove yourself. Rather, Christ is saying, if you love your enemies the way Christ instructs, it's revealing who you already are, that you are children of the most high God. That it's a love that can't be mustered up by worldly standards or worldly wisdom, but it's a love and an infilling that comes from above. From our Heavenly Father. Jesus goes on in this passage to note what God is like. He is kind to the grateful and the wicked. Christ wants us to see God for who he is. He's not some ogre up in the sky who's ready to to bring down wrath and judgment and condemnation. No, Christ says that it's actually the opposite. He says that God is kind and kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. And the challenge here is for us to be merciful to them like our Father is merciful to them. It's not hard for us to look at this situation and think, man, they've got God's blessing, right? It's easy to look at that and and see that. And it's so hard that when they stoop into our lives and take from us, it's hard, if not impossible, to want to see them succeed. Or to feel as though we need to somehow try and reclaim what's been taken from us. And yet God says, be merciful and be kind. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling completely hopeless that that is not something that I'm able to do in my own strength. A point of clarity here is that this isn't about greasy grace. We must understand that there will be a judgment day. Right? The rich store up here on earth, feeling as though this is all there is and there's nothing to come. But those that follow God say there's a different perspective here. Heaven's perspective that says, what we have today isn't the end. And so there needs to be a point of clarity that, that, that Christ teaches elsewhere about a judgment day when all of us, all, at our death or at Christ's coming, that there's a great judgment where we stand before God and give an account for our life. That is truth. But right now, it seems, that Christ isn't presenting God as a judge or a condemner, but as kind and merciful. And so too shall we. In Romans 2.4, it talks about how it's, the, it's, it's God's kindness that turns us to repentance. Not his wrath, not fear of him, but God's kindness that turns us into repentance. We are instructed to be merciful as our Father is merciful. 
We are to represent and imitate him. Just as children model and imitate their parents, so too we with mercy, even when it comes down to our enemies. And here comes the last portion. Um, I'd like to read 37 to 38. Now, I struggle with this a little bit because in most Bibles, they'll do a, they'll do a topical break and they'll usually call this judging others and it, it kind of removes it from the previous passage. But in reading this, I feel like this passage has everything to do with what has just preceded it. And, um, and I'll get you to trust that the word is inspired and that the subtitles may or may not be inspired. Okay? So he goes on and it goes like this. So after just saying, be merciful just as your father is merciful, he goes on to say, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These principles are principles to live by. We are merciful because God is merciful. And so we won't judge others. And we won't be judged. We won't condemn others. And we ourselves will not be condemned. Rather, we are to forgive and be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. God is less interested in the former. He's less interested in judgment and condemnation. And he's more interested in the latter. Christ presents a God who desires to hold off judgment and condemnation and desires to forgive. To give of himself to all who are open to receiving it. This is where the golden rule becomes infused with God's spirit and heaven's help. But notice where the initiative is. The initiative is on us taking a step of faith and doing it first and then receiving what is promised because we're already children of God. If I had to summarize, if I had to summarize this entire passage of scripture, it would be, um, well, before I get to that, I feel like, I feel like we, we ration stuff out as people. Like we're good at, at understanding, you know, you give a little to me and I'll give a little bit back. And we ration things out. And it, there's limits to it, right? There's limits to our forgiveness. There's, there's limits to how much we'll give. And yet, the whole point of, uh, I feel, of Jesus' sermon uh, on the plain is about radical generosity, an amazing giving, something that the world can't even fathom. That even your enemies, when they would strike you and you would turn your cheek, or you would not retaliate, they would be shocked by that. And yet it's difficult because I believe, you know what, it puts us in a vulnerable place because what does Rome care if the Jews roll over and die? They don't care. Right? They'll just take advantage of it because they have no regard for God. 
And I feel like sometimes it's the same in our life that we're reluctant to ration out forgiveness or, or to ration out giving because we feel in some way that it's, it's just going to be taken advantage of. And so we hold back. We feel as though we have so little already, we can't risk giving this up. And yet there's these verses in this Bible. I love, I love the imagery that's here. It says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. This is the, the imagery here is, is about like weight scales and grain, where you would use like a, 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 measure, a, a unit of measurement like this, and they would pour grain in and you would clean it off and you would say, okay, you know, that's going to cost you X amount of dollars. But what they like to do or what they wanted to do is that you could fill that with grain and swipe off the top, but then if you, if you shook this, if you really, really shook this, well, this isn't going to work so great with Cheerios or with Fruit Loops. But if you shook it, all of a sudden there's some settling that happens, right? And there's more room. So then you could put some more in. Or how about if I, if I had a bat here and I just, I just kept crunching this, pressing it down. You know, I might be able to get it squashed down to here. So all of a sudden there's more room to take more. A big difference than how it was before. And yet God says that's his nature, that's his way of giving, is in a way that is, is pressed down, shaken together, and he says, you know what? It's even running over. It's even running over. And pouring over, and it says pouring, oops, I'm making a huge mess for Doug. I, the image here is that as people would be holding these scales, that you would fold up your cloak and you would catch all the grain that would just be running over. Now, what, what's the point of a measurement if you're just going to not listen to it? Right? Like, how useless is this? That when we come to God, we come with our measurement, and he goes like that, and says, that's how the world would measure this. But how God wants to measure this is pressed down, shaken together, and running over where all of a sudden God is giving in a way that your unit of measurement is too small. In fact, your unit of measurement is irrelevant in terms of the way that God wants to give in your life. And so it looks more like this, that when you come to him and you ask, God gives, and he keeps giving, and he keeps filling, and he keeps filling, and I hope I have enough water, and he keeps filling. But look what happens to all the stuff in our life. It flows over freely into the lives of other people. And it's done so with joy, not with, a, not with a sense of lack and a sense of resentment of having to give and to love and to forgive, but with a sense of joy. And yet when our super um, dirty water cleared, the world would still look at that and say, you know what, there's nothing special about your life. It's, it's clear, I can see through it, and yet... The evidence of God's filling in our life is that it flows over into other people. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So to summarize this entire chapter, this entire section, I'm going to give it to you in a nugget that you can walk away in, walk away with. 
And while our lives may still look empty by the world's standards, our experience of the Father's love tells us that our lives are overflowing. We are not the victims here, but we are the recipients of God's love and God's spirits. We've all fallen victim to sin, and we need the only judge who can set this injustice right, which is Christ. I believe that what Jesus is teaching us in this passage is this, that if God is our treasure, we will love without measure. That from heaven's perspective, when God is your treasure, you will love without measure. So if you're feeling inadequate and you're feeling like, I don't know how this is going to make sense, I don't know how I'm going to forgive my enemies, you need to receive from God. A God who says, give and it will be given to you. It's going to take a step of faith. And yet when you do that, it creates space in our life for God to fill. And he doesn't just want to fill it a little bit. He wants to fill it the whole way. So that that stuff that you're hanging on, that stuff that you're maybe having trouble letting go of, will just freely flow from your life to where he desires it to go. If God is your treasure, you will love without measure. I'm going to ask just the the worship team if you guys want to make your way back, Tammy. You know, this is the kind of love that Christ lived by. You know, this wasn't just a revolution that he was preaching and uh, to try and get something out of it in terms of money or finances, but it's, it's a law that he lived by. And it's quite remarkable because later on in Luke, we find Jesus being nailed to a cross for the sins of the world. That Rome has nailed this king of the Jews and his death is certain. And yet you know what Christ utters? He says, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That in the face of his enemies, his heart was full of the love of God, and he's able to forgive. Now, three days later, Christ rises again and validates his message. The stamp of approval, the seal of the Sermon on the Plain, is certain that what he taught, what he preached, was truth. And you know what? It began to catch fire because all of a sudden there's a, there's a Christian by the name of Stephen we read about in the book of Acts who is dragged before Sanhedrin and they decide to stone him. And so they take him out and they begin to stone him. And, and Stephen, his eyes are not looking at what man is looking at, but his eyes are up to heaven and he sees heaven open and he sees Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And you know what, you know what Stephen's heart reply is? Is God forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. That isn't a love that comes by the world's standards or the world's way of doing things. That's a love that's only possible by what we receive from our Heavenly Father. And look at the revolution that has started, you guys. Rome has long since fallen and passed away. And yet, God's kingdom is forcefully advancing through all generations all nations, all time and all space, his love goes forward. And he speaks and he fills those who would have ears to hear.